Last Sunday, we, we looked at people who missed Christmas. Okay, so last Sunday, we focused on people who missed Christmas. We actually opened up our Bibles, and we looked at people who missed Christmas. And we looked at the reasons why they missed it. And we looked at the innkeeper, you know, the guy that was running the hotel where Mary and Joseph came to. And he missed it because he was ignorantly preoccupied. We, we looked at the Romans uh, they missed Christmas because they were engaged in pagan idolatry. You know, they were worshiping idols and things like that. We looked at Herod the Great. He was the king at that time when Jesus was born. And he missed Christmas because he was jealous and fearful. We looked at the religious leaders. Of all the people that you would think that would not miss Christmas, the religious leaders, right, totally missed Christmas. Why? Pride and indifference. And then finally, we looked at the people of Jerusalem, another very large group that you would think that would have gotten Christmas, but they totally, totally missed it because they were wrapped up in false religion. So that was what we focused on last Sunday. This morning, we are going to open our Bibles and look at people who did not miss Christmas. Last week, people who missed it. This week, people who did not miss it. And this morning, I'm going to give you six examples right from Scripture. I think it's appropriate that we pray once more before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves now and we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom you sent to us to save us. What a wonderful time of year it is to focus on the birth of Christ, and what a wonderful thing it is, the birth of Christ, our Savior who came. And so may we just give you our, our focus this morning and, and uh, our attention and we pray that the Holy Spirit would minister to each one of us in, in whatever ways we need that ministry. And we pray also, Lord, that you would get all the glory for all that takes place here. That's really what this is about. It's about you, God. It's about what you've done. It's about Jesus, the reason for the season. And so, so we want to emphasize that. We want to focus on that. We want to focus on the gospel. And we want to give you all the praise and glory. And Lord, I pray that if there'd be anyone here today that has yet to come to know you in a saving way, in relationship with you through Jesus, that you would work that out in their heart, in their soul, because only you can do that. Only you can perform that miracle of saving grace, that sovereign grace. And so we pray for that. And for the rest of us who already know you, Lord, we pray that, that we would be sanctified now. That means to be made more like Jesus. That means to be made less like me and more like Jesus. And so we pray for all of those great things to take place. Your glory, the salvation of those who are lost and for our sanctification, and may you receive it all. You are the best. You are great. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you guys ready for the first example? Yeah. I'm going back to the Old Testament a little bit. There were some people that, that, that in the Old Testament that weren't around for Christmas time who didn't miss Christmas. And the first one that came to mind for me as I was preparing this sermon is a guy named Micah. I think one of my kids has the middle name of Micah, Ian, right? Is it Ian? Okay, my wife's like, oh my gosh, he can't even remember his kid's name. I can't even remember their birthdays. I'm a pathetic father. But Micah, Micah was a prophet of God, and uh, he appeared during the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. These were kings of Judah, around 750 680 to 686 B.C. And during this period of time, uh, there was great crisis happening in the land, and uh, there was a lot of upheaval. And the reign of King Ahaz brought, and this guy was not a good king, his reign and his leadership brought spiritual lethargy, it brought apostasy, tons of hypocrisy. The people of God worshipped God, but they did it only in ritual, not in their hearts, but they just went through the mechanized religion and went through the rituals. And we see that happening even today in our day. But that's what was playing out then. And there was this great mistreatment of one another as well. The people were not treating each other uh, in a way that, that upheld the Mosaic law, you know, God's law in these things. And they, their pursuit of idolatry, you know, false idols in these things and false gods, it revealed their lack of sincerity in their religion toward God. So all of these things were kind of playing out. And, and then Micah kind of steps on the scene and his purpose really as a prophet was threefold. It was to show the people of Judah the error of their ways, to show that they were being hypocritical, to show that they were only worshiping God with their lips and not with their hearts. Secondly, to proclaim the coming discipline and judgment of God against them. 
And that's one thing we know from the Old Testament prophets. They preached a lot of judgment. Like, you know what? God's going to come and He's going to deal with you guys if you don't repent. And so He did that. And then thirdly, to announce the coming of the messianic king, the king of Israel, the king of kings, who will reign in righteousness. And now we look at Micah 5.2. This is Micah prophesying about the coming of Jesus. He says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Micah foretold where the promised messianic king or the Messiah, the Savior, would be born. In Bethlehem, which was literally then a hole in the wall, a tiny, tiny little town, a small community. 700 years later, roughly 700 years later, long after Micah had had gone to be with the Lord, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the prophecy came true. Matthew 2.1, Luke 2.7. Micah may not have been present for Christmas or for the first Christmas, but he didn't miss Christmas, did he? He didn't miss it. He didn't miss it. He, he actually told us where it would occur, where the Messiah would be born, right there in Bethlehem. And when Jesus was born there, Micah's words, God's word actually through Micah, came true. It was fulfilled. That's how Micah, an Old Testament prophet, did not miss Christmas. That's our first example, Micah. Our second example, another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. Maybe many of you have heard of him. Maybe he's a little bit more popular. He wrote a a huge book that's in the Bible. He was another prophet of God. He appeared during the same time as Micah. This means that they were contemporaries. They preached basically at the same time to the same people. The basic theme of Isaiah's message to the people of Judah is that salvation is bestowed only by grace and by the power of God rather than by the merits and strength of man. So Isaiah came and really preached the gospel because what the gospel is, is it shows us that God has come, that God alone can save, that it's by grace through faith and these kinds of things where you have people that really believe that they're earning their way. So Isaiah comes and tells the people, you're not earning your way with God. Part of his message too was that the holy God will not permit unholiness in his covenant people, whom the Jews were, and will therefore deal with them in such a way as to chasten and purge them and make them fit to participate in his program of redemption. So that's kind of the gist of Isaiah's message. It's it's all of grace. It's not of what you're doing. And God will not permit unholiness, unrighteousness, unrighteousness and those sorts of things in his covenant people. He wants his family to live a certain way and he deals with them appropriately. That's kind of the gist of his message. Now, in some respects, the book of Isaiah is a miniature Bible. Think about it. It has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. And and, and this is is insane. I couldn't believe this when I read this. I thought, what, what? This is crazy. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah anticipate the coming of Messiah, like the 39 books of the Old Testament. The parallels are incredible. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah speak a great deal about Messiah and His kingdom just like the 27 books of the New Testament. Was God trying to tell us something through the writings of Isaiah long before Jesus ever came? Absolutely. Isaiah sets forth the doctrine of Christ in such full detail throughout the centuries and years. Theologians have rightly described him as the evangelical prophet. Now listen to what Isaiah scribed or wrote in Isaiah 7.14. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah tells us two things about Messiah in this verse. Number one, he would be born of a virgin, a woman who had never been with a man. That's what it means. Some say it translates as young maiden. That's not accurate. It literally means one who has not been with a man. Now, if If he is born of a virgin, then that must mean that this birth is a supernatural birth, right? Because virgins typically don't get pregnant on their own. I've never heard of that. It doesn't happen. 
So the nature of this birth is that it comes through a virgin, one who has never been with a man. It must be supernatural. That's the inference that we draw from it. Number two, that's the first thing. Number two, his name shall be Emmanuel. And the Hebrew translation of Emmanuel means what? God with us. That's Emmanuel literally means incarnation. Roughly 700 years later, long after Isaiah had passed away, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, was born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, right? Luke chapter 1, 35 and chapter 2, 4 through 7. Again, Isaiah may not have been present for Christmas, but he did not miss Christmas, did he? He told us how Messiah, how our Savior, how Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, would be born. And he pointed to his divine identity as the Son of God, didn't he? God with us. There's your second example, two Old Testament examples. Now we move on to the New Testament. Our third example, and you're going to say, duh, our third example is Mary. Well, of course she didn't miss Christmas. That's what I thought, and I thought you're a moron for writing this. Well, hold on. I added Mary to the list because I want you to see how she first struggled with the news. She didn't just go, great. She had a hard time with the news the angel brought to her at first, and she humbled herself. Could she have missed Christmas? I don't think so. God is sovereign, but she was kind of, it kind of sniffed of it a little bit there. When the angel Gabriel appeared to her, she became frightened. Oh, why would she do that? Well, it's just an angel probably blazing in glory. I don't know about you, but that just wouldn't frighten me. If an angel appears to me, I'm, I'm, I'm flying. I'm gone. I'm running. Or I'm bowing and then getting told, get up, dummy. I'm not God. Gabriel appeared to her, and she was frightened. And he began to explain to her why he was there, why he had come to her. Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33 He says this to her, you will conceive in your womb. Okay, that's just crazy if you're standing there and you're a young lady. Huh? You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the son of the the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Listen to this prophecy. And, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his, of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay, so th- this, is like, this is like big theological stuff here, right? You're a virgin. You're going to conceive in your womb. You're going to bear a son. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. He's going to be the son of God, literally. Uh, He's going to take up the throne of David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. He's got a kingdom that's everlasting, eternal. Do you think that Mary would have been a bit confused and perplexed? Absolutely. She was perplexed. She was struggling to understand what was happening, the appearance of the angel and these prophetic words. She was young. She knew she was a virgin. She knew she'd never been with anyone. She's a young woman and she loves God. She had never given herself over to everyone. And she says, how will this be? In light of her virginity, how will this be? How can this, I'm a virgin. Luke 1.34 Gabriel replied, here's how it's going to take place. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God, Luke 1.35. So, okay, Mary, you don't understand how it's going to play out. This is how it's going to play out. It's supernatural through the Holy Spirit. He will come upon you, there will be a miracle, and you will have a baby in your womb. Completely unnatural, not like what we do on this side of glory. It's going to be different. So she's young. She's frightened. She's a, perp- she's a bit perplexed. How did Mary respond to Gabriel's prophecy and appearance? How did she respond? Now, I want you to think about Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who was told that she would have a child. And how did she respond when the angel of the Lord told her she would have a child? She laughed. <laughs> I'm like 200 years old, dude. Well past the time. She wasn't 200. She was like almost 100. She laughed. 
She laughed, Genesis 18, 12. That's Sarah, and she was a godly woman. Think about Zechariah, the, 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 the future at that point, daddy of John the Baptist. What did he do? He mocked the angel who appeared to him and said that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son. Luke chapter 1, verse 18. You got two examples of people being told similar things, not exactly the same, but similar. You're going to have kids. One laughs, the other mocks. Was Mary about to follow in their footsteps? How did she respond? Was she about to miss Christmas? No. Luke 1.38, Behold, this is what she says to the angel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is humble submission. Mary accepted God's plan without resistance or hesitation. Sure, she was frightened. Sure, she was a bit perplexed and confused because we're talking about supernatural things that have been baffling human minds forever. But she didn't buck against it. She didn't laugh. She didn't scoff. She didn't reply like other people. You go down into into the chapter a little bit, down to verses 46 and 55, and you look at the song that she, she sang. Just an amazing song. It's Mary's song, and it it just illustrates her humility and willingness to serve God. It shows that that as a young woman, a girl, according to our cultural standards, we wouldn't call a 13, 14-year-old girl a young woman. Maybe we would today. I don't know. I think of that as a girl. I was a junior high pastor for years, and to me, those were girls. I didn't want to think of them as women or all that. They were girls to me, and we would say this is a girl. As a young woman, though, as a, as a girl according to our standards or ideas, she, you look at the song, she possessed a level of spiritual maturity, a level of spiritual depth that is literally rarely seen in the church today by veteran saints. Mary did not miss Christmas. She didn't even come close to missing Christmas. I wish we could say the same thing about her fiancé. He didn't miss Christmas, but he came really close. Now let's look at our fourth example, Joseph. Joseph. Mary was betrothed to Joseph, Matthew 1.18. To be betrothed, or as Mike said, betrothed, I don't know which way you're supposed to go with it. I'll say betrothed. To be betrothed meant to be legally pledged to be married. Mary and Joseph had gone before a rabbi, a a Jewish religious leader, and and pledged themselves to one another in holy matrimony. At some point in the future, they would go through an actual wedding ceremony. They would consummate their marriage through sexual intercourse, which was very normal then. and, And then they would move in together and begin to live as a married couple. But betrothal was like marriage in that if you wanted out of it, you had to file for divorce. You didn't get all the benefits that you get in marriage. You could not sleep together or live together or do those things. But in, in, a simil- in a kind of a quite interesting way, if you wanted out of the betrothal, you had to file for divorce. That's, it was a binding thing. When Joseph discovered Mary's pregnancy, he decided to divorce her quietly. He was a just man. He was a godly man. And he did not want her to experience shame, Matthew 1.19. And I think that worse than that even, that there was a death penalty that hung over your head for fornication or adultery, which means that Mary could have, if she'd been reported, she could have been literally put to death for this. He didn't want anything like that to happen to her. He cared about her, but he couldn't get his mind around the pregnancy. He had a hard time with it. We don't know how Joseph came to know about her pregnancy. We don't know if Mary told him about Gabriel and about the Holy Spirit and you know, all the detail of that. We don't know if, if she described that to him. I think that's how it went down. We don't know. And maybe he simply did not believe her. He didn't trust her. Or if maybe he could tell that she was pregnant because she was starting to show. We don't know. Either way, he wanted out of the betrothal. And this is how he almost missed Christmas. He wanted to divorce her quietly. And one night... As he was pondering how to divorce her quietly, he fell asleep and an angel appeared to him in a dream. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 20 through 21. Incredible instruction here given to him in the middle of a dream. How did Joseph respond to the angel's encouragement, exhortation? How, how did he, what did he do? Did he wake up the next morning and disregard the dream and the word that the angel spoke to him, the word of God that the angel spoke to him? Kind of try to find a way to continue on in, in getting the secret, quiet divorce. What did he do? Was he about to miss Christmas? No. Matthew 1.24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He married her. Joseph obeyed God's instruction through the angel and he married her. And he did something else, which I think is extraordinary. He made the decision to wait until after the birth of Jesus to consummate their marriage. To consummate means to seal the covenant through what married couples do. And you know what I mean. You might say that Joseph did not want to interfere with Christmas, so he chose to deny his flesh and wait to be with his wife. That's incredible. Matthew 1.25 says, But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He even gave Jesus the name the angel told him to give him. Normally, you must understand the context, normally a, a new husband and wife would slip, slip away, literally they would kind of slip away shortly after the wedding ceremony concludes, still during the whole party and reception because they went on for like a whole week. The new, newly married couple would slip away to seal the marital covenant through sexual intercourse. The best man, and this is, to me is just like totally awkward, but it's their tradition, the best man would lead them to the, what would be called the wedding chamber, and he would let them go inside and he would shut the door and wait outside the door until they were finished. That's just crazy to me. But that's how they did it. That's how they did it back then. It was sacred. It was really this beautiful kind of ceremonial kind of thing. And the best man would take him and he would wait outside and they would go in there. And, and that was really about sealing that covenant. But Joseph and Mary did not follow their tradition. They waited until after Jesus was born, not to, not to get married, but to consummate their marriage until after Christmas. Now, I'll tell you, that, that just speaks of Joseph's godliness. He was more interested in God's plan than in satisfying his fleshly desires, which husbands and wives are fully entitled to. Married couples are supposed to do these things with one another. And he said, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not doing it. I'm going to wait. We're going to wait until Jesus is born. And I looked through Scripture and tried to find if he was instructed to do that. He may have been. I don't know. But either way, to me, that's, that's self-denial and self-sacrifice. He didn't even want to mess with Christmas. Not only did he not miss it, he didn't want to mess with it. We're going to get past that point. Then Mary and I will, you know, hey, you know, we'll hang out. He worked to preserve Christmas. And we should also note that he was the only one by Mary's side, except for probably some goats and barn animals, when she gave birth to Jesus. No midwife. The innkeeper totally dropped the ball, didn't supply them with anything. And I'll tell you what, for him to be there with her, and he's a young man too, that's pretty impressive to me, for a young father to be there with his wife. He wasn't puking. He didn't pass out. He didn't run out going, you know, or whatever. He didn't make silly, stupid jokes. He was there with her, comforting her, and probably all thumbs. What do I do? Stay out of my way. But he was there. He didn't miss it. He helped to preserve it. That's Joseph. Let's look at our fifth example. The shepherds. Out of all the people in Jerusalem, God singled out shepherds to receive the great news about the birth of Christ. Shepherds were a despised group because they weren't any good at maintaining the Jewish ceremonially or ceremonial washings or religious activities. Why? Because they were always out in the field tending to their sheep. They were a, a scruffy, dirty bunch. Doesn't mean they weren't godly. But they weren't like the people that had other jobs 
who could wash their hands all day long and do all the little Jewish ceremonial things and all that. They just weren't that kind of group, and they were despised because of that, because of their appearance and because of their lack of piety, if you want to call it that, but I don't think it was piety. Luke 2, 8 through 14 says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Again, angels show up. You don't go, oh, look, an angel. You are scared. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. God didn't come just to save Jewish people, but Gentile, non-Jewish people. This is for unto you is born this day in the city of David. That's Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the messianic Lord of the universe. He is the King of kings. And this will be a sign for you. Here's how you'll know. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel. One angel was reporting this. And then soon as, they, soon as this angel mentions Jesus, the, the Savior in the manger, look what happens. And suddenly there was with the angel a, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. What did the shepherds do? First, we know they were fearful, but they were told not to be fearful. But how did they respond to this glorious appearance and pronouncement? We see five things in the rest of the section. First, they agreed with one another to go to Bethlehem to see for themselves and confirm God's message to them through the angels. Luke 2.15, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. That's the first thing they did. Second, they wasted no time. Luke 2.16a says they went with haste. This means they literally dropped what they were doing, including their sheep. That's the sheep saying, where are you going, dude? We're out. They literally left their sheep and everything that they were doing. It was the evening. They were probably sitting around a fire, but they just, they got up and went in haste. They went quickly. And I'll tell you what, it was rare for shepherds to leave their sheep. Very rare. Sheep become vulnerable to predators and when they're left alone and they tend to wander into danger. These guys didn't care at that moment because they wanted to go to Bethlehem to see the good shepherd, Right? We have sheep. I forgot about the sheep. Oh, no. They didn't care. They left. Third, when they entered Bethlehem, they found Mary, Joseph, and Jesus lying in a manger. That's a food trough for farm animals. Luke 2, 16b. So they go in and they find the family. Fourth, they described to Joseph, Mary, and others who were at the inn what they had heard and seen while they were in the field taking care of their sheep. Luke 2, 17 through 19, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds literally told everyone around them that the baby in the manger was none other than Israel's Savior, the Christ. Hey, 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 buddy, do you, do you know what's playing out here? Do you have any idea what's going on here? You see that little baby right there with the straw and everything? That, that's Israel's Messiah. Get out of here. I'm trying to have a beer in the pub. They went around telling everyone in the vicinity who the baby is. They were evangelizing. It's incredible. Shepherds. Fifth, the shepherds returned to their sheep, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Luke 2.20. Now, we should note, and I covered this a little bit last week, we should note that none of the important people in Israel came to Bethlehem to see Jesus at this time. None of them. The ones that you would expect to come did not come. King Herod? No, he didn't come. The religious leaders? Nope, they didn't come. Any dignitaries or anything like that from the city? Nope, they didn't come out there. They all missed Christmas. And guess what? They continued to miss Christmas all the way through Jesus' ministry. They never got Christmas, as far as I know. Some did, I guess. And let me tell you something. Herod and the religious leaders, those who should have been out there, they didn't miss it. They didn't come out to Jesus because they were uninformed. 
because the wise men showed up a little later on and told them what was going on, and they still didn't go out there to see. The shepherds were the only ones from the area who came to Bethlehem. The dirty, unceremonially clean shepherds. And that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose the dirty, scroungy shepherds. And guess what? Because of sin, we're all dirty and scroungy. And we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another verse that I'm thinking of right now that comes into my mind is where Jesus is challenged because he's hanging around with dirty, scruffy, sinful people. And he says, I did not come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. Amen? The shepherds did not miss Christmas. Let's look at our final example. And this one I've, I wrote most extensively on because it's just, it's just literally fascinating. The wise men. The wise men. They were an interesting bunch, an interesting group. They were not from Israel. They were not Jewish. Uh, they would be what we would call Gentile. That means non-Jewish. Matthew 2.1 says they came from the east. They came from somewhere else to the east. And I think that that refers to the region of Persia, modern-day Iran. Yes, I think they were probably Persian. Some Bible translations, maybe yours does, calls them magi, M-A-G-I, which is basically short for magician. But magicians in those days are not like the magicians of our day, David Copperfield, Chris Angel, or any of that stuff. Magicians then were not the same as magicians today. An ancient magician was an astrologer, but not like the astrologers of today, like, remember Cleo? Call me now. How many of you got sucked into sending money to that? I'm putting my hand up, not because I did it, just trying to encourage you to be honest. Nobody sent her money? That's fantastic. Probably were the first one to get exposed to identity theft after sending it to her. You remember those commercials, though? Fake, you know, Jamaican accent? Call me now. I remember that. I remember commercials. I watch too much TV. So they were not astrologers like today's astrologers, right? Astrology then was kind of an early form of astronomy. You didn't have all the fancy lenses and all that, but basically astrologers studied space, but primarily they studied the stars. Being from Persia, the wise men would have had an in-depth knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, complements of the Babylonian exile and the prophet Daniel, right, which happened before this. So they had a knowledge of scripture because of the region they came from, because of that exile that took place long before them. One particular scripture really stood out to them, and we already talked about it. It's Micah's prophecy in Micah 5.2. They knew that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This is something that they understood. And one night when they were studying the stars, something caught their attention. They noticed what appeared to be a new star to the west. And I don't know... How long after the birth of Jesus this took place? I think it was a little while. It wasn't like the very night that Jesus was born, the star was there. This was a little later. We know that because he was a little older when they came to him. But they noticed something. It caught their attention. They noticed a new star to the west. And they believed that that star they had never seen before, and they were very familiar with the, with the sky and space, they believed that that new star which appeared in that area signified or signaled the birth of Messiah. That was the connection they made. And what did they do? They formed a caravan, and they began to travel in the direction of the star. Now, their homeland was probably east of Babylon. And if you know anything about their region, Babylon's about 500 miles from Jerusalem. What I'm telling you is that the journey took a long time. And some say, it took them two years. No, it didn't take them that long. The average person takes 20 minutes to walk a mile, okay? That's a, to me, it seems like a long time, but that's your average pace. If you walked eight hours a day at the average pace, it would take you 21 days or around three weeks to walk 500 miles. 
So it probably took that much time, maybe a little bit more. I think they were probably seven or 800 miles away. I don't know. We don't know for sure, but they traveled a great distance. And as they traveled, they came to Jerusalem. Why? Because that seemed like the most logical place to search for Israel's Messiah who'd been born, right? Let's go to the headquarters. When they arrived at the city, they began to ask around, Matthew 2, 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. That's what they were saying to the townsfolk. King Herod noticed them. He heard about them. Somebody pointed them out, and he became troubled. He was paranoid. He did not want to lose his throne to some other king. And the people of Jerusalem were also troubled by the news. Matthew 2, 3, that makes absolutely no sense to me. Herod was not Jewish. He was from Idumea. Uh, He did not know Scripture. So to kind of check things out, he called a meeting together with his religious leaders of Israel, Matthew 2, 4. They confirmed Micah 5, 2 and the wise men's testimony that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Matthew 2, 5 through 6. So Herod does an investigation. He gets the religious leaders together. They're confirming that the birth will take place in Bethlehem. They're not confirming that it took place, but they're saying that's where it'll happen. The wise men are saying it happened. Herod devised a plan to eliminate Jesus, but he needed critical information before he could initiate his plan. He needed Jesus' precise location. Acting like an authentic worshiper, he called a meeting with the wise men and asked if they would go to Bethlehem to find Jesus so that he himself could go and worship Jesus. He didn't have any intention to worship Jesus. He wanted to know where he was so he could kill him because he didn't want a competitor. The wise men agreed to go find Jesus. That's what they wanted to do to begin with. They didn't know that they were being duped at that time. Matthew 2, 7 through 9a. Bethlehem is only a couple of miles, a few miles, maybe three miles or so away, so probably about an hour by foot. Maybe it's a little bit more. It's not far from Jerusalem. And when the wise men drew near to the the town or the city, the star reappeared and began to move and direct them to where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were staying at that time. This was a house, not this, you know, a, the manger and all that. This was later. This star literally comes and hovers above the house where they are staying, where they live at that moment. It positioned itself above their residence, Matthew 2, 9b. And of course, if you're like me, you say, well, how could a star do this? How could a star move like this? I've seen moving stars, but they're moving so quick, I have to ask myself, did I just see what I saw? They're like a mouse in the kitchen. Yeah, we had to deal with one lately. But you've seen a shooting star. That's the only time I've ever seen one move. How could a star move like this? And how come nothing in the area was being burned up? Stars are balls of burning hydrogen and helium. They're hot. The circumference of the smallest stars in our galaxy is 40 miles. It's a circumference, 40 miles around, nearly four times the size of modern-day Bethlehem. One star would be four times. One of the smallest stars in the galaxy would be four times the size of Bethlehem. How does this work? This sounds a bit preposterous to me. Was this an actual star? Probably not. What was it then? The Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah, which literally means dwelling of God, was the visible presence of God. Prior to this, the most notable appearance of the Shekinah was the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night, Exodus 13, 21. The Shekinah glory of God can obviously lead people to specific locations, And it is seen later in connection with Christ's ministry. Matthew 17, 5, Acts 1, 9. The Shekinah fits the evidence. Quite honestly, it shouldn't surprise us that God would use a miraculous sign to signal the advent of His Son into the world. It was the glory of God that took on the form of something like a star that appeared, that could move, that could direct. I read somewhere that only the wise men could see the star to begin with. 
That's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's true. I didn't research it. When the wise men saw the Shekinah star, the Shekinah glory over the house, they rejoiced exceedingly, it says in the text, and they went inside the house. See, it says house. They saw Jesus, who was now a toddler, with his mother Mary, and they fell down and began to worship him. Matthew 2, 10 through 11. They brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and presented them to Jesus, who was just a toddler. Each gift was symbolic. Gold was given as a gift to royalty. Jesus is the King of kings. Frankincense is a type of incense, a very high-end, expensive incense that's burned. When the priest burned it at the temple, the smoke and fragrance represented the prayers of the people going up to God. And that would even mingle in with the sacrifice that was going up. Jesus is our great high priest who prays and intercedes for his people. See the significance? Myrrh is a type of resin that is extracted from a shrub called cystus. It has numbing qualities similar to opium. It was used for various things, especially embalming. Here, it symbolizes Jesus' death on the cross and burial. Jesus was given wine mixed with myrrh while he was suffering on the cross, but he refused to drink it. Mark 15, 23. After, or after uh, Jesus' uh, death and Joseph of Arimathea gets him down off the cross and he places him in his own tomb, Nicodemus then, another uh, guy who was a Pharisee who became a believer, he arrives at the tomb where Jesus has just been placed in there and he's carrying with him 75 pounds of mixed aloes and myrrh. The two men took the mixture and began to prepare Jesus' body for burial. John 19, 38 through 40. You see the connection of what the gifts symbolize? Let me boil it down for you. The gold represents the fact that Jesus is King of Kings. The frankincense represents the fact that Jesus is the great high priest. The myrrh represents the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God who come or who came to take away the sin of the world. Now, this was just mind-blowing as I was reflecting on these things, and I always try to read commentaries just to make sure that I'm not going off track, but I actually found a commentary that I think was trying to lead me off track. It happens. One commentary I was reading last week said that the, and, and the, the guy that wrote the commentary said that the, the wise men were, were unbelieving people. They were unbelieving pagans. They were pagans, unbelievers. Really? They studied the scriptures. They searched the stars for biblical significance. They traveled over 500 miles to Jerusalem to try to find the Messiah who had recently been born. They went throughout the city asking if anyone knew where he was. They discussed the matter with the most powerful uh, man in Israel, Herod the Great. They followed the star, the Shekinah, to Jesus' precise location in Bethlehem. They fell prostrate on their faces and worshipped Him. They presented gifts to Jesus which correspond perfectly with who He is, King, Priest, and Lamb. Down in Matthew 2.12, we read that the wise men did not return to Herod to reveal Jesus' location like they were supposed to do. Instead, they went back home. Yeah, these guys are unbelieving pagans because that's how unbelieving pagans respond to Jesus. Are you nuts? These guys had a better theology than most Christians today. They brought gifts that represented exactly who Jesus is and what He would accomplish. These guys were advanced in their theology. These guys were godly men. These guys were men of, of faith. They were the real deal they believed in the messiah to come and in the messiah who came which is more than we can say for most of the jewish people then they were men of incredible faith men whom we ought to aspire to be like the wise men did not miss christmas on the contrary they set an example each of us should follow closing 
You still with me? During Christmas time, we spend an enormous amount of energy decorating our homes, preparing meals, which children think are weird food. Spend a lot of time or a lot of energy baking goods and things like that. There's just an enormous amount of energy that is spent by most people this time of year through decorating and baking and cooking and doing all of those things. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying we spend a lot of energy at this time. We spend a lot of time running back and forth between stores. A lot of gas running around. You're like, I don't do it on Amazon. Oh, whatever. We spend a lot of time on Amazon looking at different things and trying to find things that you can buy for people. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of energy that is spent. There's a lot of time that is spent shopping and researching and doing those things. And boy, there's a lot of money spent buying gifts for our friends, family, co-workers, and maybe if you're a young person in school for our fellow students. Christmas typically consumes more of our energy, time, money, than any other holiday, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And you know what? Because of this, Christmas has become, for many, the most stressful and depressing holiday each year. It could be that you have family dynamics that are, that are just off, and, and that's what brings so much stress and anxiety, and you're having to be with relatives and things where there's unsolved issues and problems. I mean, it just, I don't know, maybe the suicide rate goes up around Christmas. It wouldn't surprise me. It tends to be, because of the energy, time, and money that is spent, because of the dynamics, it tends to be the most stressful and even depressing Holiday, And for some people, it's very depressing because they spend the next two years paying off what they charged. I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I once heard a pastor say that he hated Christmas time at his church because it was such a grind on all the employees because of the endless planning meetings and 20 services they put on every weekend. That's a pastor who said that. He wasn't the pastor of the church. He was a pastor at the church. And that's, every time Christmas came, he just cringed. And I bet some of the employees cringed. Oh, boy. Here's where I don't get to spend any time with my family. My question is, is Christmas supposed to be a grind? Is it supposed to drain us physically, financially, emotionally, or spiritually? Is it supposed to be stressful and depressing? No. But we make it this way when we follow society's version of it. We make it this way when we submit to Santa instead of to the Savior. Amen? You see, the, the way of the wise men is truly wise. To them, Christmas was literally all about Jesus. They watched for Him. They traveled to Him. They bowed before Him. They presented their gifts not to one another, but to Jesus. Boy, have we screwed that up. Are you saying that you don't like the idea of buying things for people? You know what? I do believe Jesus' words. It's, it's better to give than to receive, but we have screwed Christmas up. We have screwed it up so badly, but by the time we're done spending our energy, time, and money, we don't even have anything left over to give to the Lord through His church. Shameful. You see, the wise men set an example for us, didn't they? They gave their gifts to Jesus. That's biblical Christmas. The other version is old Saint Nick. And I'll tell you what, the truth is, Christmas will always be a grind. Christmas will always be stressful and depressing if we make it about something or someone other than Jesus. Life itself will be a grind 
if we make our life about something or someone other than Jesus. It's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve. It's not too late to follow the example of the wise men and make Christmas about Jesus. You see, they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We can give him honor, praise, and glory through our time, talent, and treasure. That's what we can give to Jesus. That's how we can make Christmas about Jesus. Maybe for some of you, you just that's not even the first step for you. You don't even know Jesus. You know Santa. I beg of you to come to know Jesus. He is the reason for the season. And this is the time of year where we focus on Him coming into the world, into a war zone torn by sin and death to make all things new. Maybe even you. Can we make it about Jesus? That's what it's about. If you don't know the Lord, you can bow to Him in your heart. Humble yourself and give yourself to Him. Turn from your self-sufficiency and believe entirely on Jesus for your salvation. His grace and mercy is there for you. For the rest of us, we ought to know better. If we already know Christ, we ought to know better what Christmas is about. I say this to you as a convicted man. I don't think I've ever celebrated Christmas. And I feel it. Because every year, I go crazy. And spend and run. See, I, in theory... I say, absolutely, it's about Jesus. But does my life show that? No. I am the chief confessor of this church. And I'm encouraging you to confess if you've had it wrong. Let's make it about Jesus, okay?